you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Welcome everyone to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I am thrilled today to have a special guest, someone you wouldn't consider to be a a regular member of the Tongue Tie team, but definitely important. Um, Dr. Trill from Free to Feed is here. And um, Dr. Trill, before I go on talking about you, would you like to say a few words about yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. So first, I have to say thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on today. It is an honor to speak with you and your listeners. Um, So a little bit about myself. I am a molecular biologist by trade and in the past have specialized in protein analysis. And I have two little girls who both had severe food allergies and reactions to proteins transferred from my diet to my breast. And that was a huge shock to me, even as a protein expert, that that was something that could occur while breastfeeding. And so I navigated their food allergy journey um, times two. So I breastfed both of them successfully for a year apiece. Um, And both of them completely different journeys and very hard journeys um, to go through um, elimination diets and reintroduction strategies and at the midst of all of all of, of all of that, I truly took a step back and was dumbfounded that there wasn't enough resources to help me navigate this. And there wasn't a lot of research either to really deep dive into exactly what is transferring from our diet to our breast, what can elicit a response in our infants, and what can we do about it. So I started Free to Feed, which helps parents navigate food allergies, and we have spent the last four years um, getting grant-funded and investor-funded research in order to understand exactly those things. What does a peanut look like when it transfers to the breast, and can it elicit a response in an infant, and how do we help parents navigate that? So right now, we offer consults and resources and education around that topic, but long-term, our goal is to launch a test strip that will allow parents to test their breast milk for the presence of allergens at home, which we're working very hard on in the lab. Wow, that's fantastic. So um, one of the things that I want our listeners to hear in your story that I hear every time I hear your story is how you were a scientist who was a mom who didn't have the information that she needed because nobody makes the connections. And I think it's, you know, there's lots of parents with tongue-tie issues who are also professionals in fields that should know about tongue-tie and come to it that way. So there's a lot of parallels in the way that these two fields are developing because it's it's new and we're, we're helping 
not, not that the problems are new. I want, I want to back up a little bit. The problems, the concerns, the, the challenges are not new, but the awareness and the treatment is evolving and changing and growing exponentially over the last few years in both tongue tie and in food intolerances, correct? Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's so interesting to watch the evolution of this. Even in the four years that uh, we have been in existence, we have seen things like specific um, allergies and reactivity that causes specifically issues in infants and younger children. Just now getting a code for being able to be diagnosed in 2016 very, very recent. Um, so exactly the same, very parallel in the tongue tie world where more and more awareness, more and more research and understanding around it, very specifically because parents and families have had to navigate it without having the right resource and research and assistance. Um, and so those are the game changers that are saying like, nope, this isn't okay. This is unacceptable and it has to be better. Mm -hmm. And you are providing such needed assistance and guidance to so many families. And I thank you for that. Um, one of the, the topics around food and breastfeeding that's very easily confused is the difference between a true allergy and an intolerance. And I hear, um, you know, what I get from my patients is, you know, is it, will my child be allergic to this forever? And, the, and the, the words allergy and intolerance are often interchanged. Maybe you can bring us some clarity around those terms. Yeah, I'd be super happy to. This is one of the, the biggest forms of um, kind of misinformation and, and misunderstanding. Um, and they are often used interchangeably and they shouldn't be. So on the intolerance side of things, an actual true intolerance is when our body doesn't effectively make the correct enzymes to break down food. And so it's actually very uncommon for an infant to have an intolerance um, because when we're born, typically infants are making all the right enzymes, they're able to break down the right food. And the interesting thing with an intolerance, too, is that if we're born with the inability to properly make an enzyme, we're likely, one, that's going to be caught very early in the hospital because baby's not going to be able to um, break down anything. So it doesn't matter how much we adjust the diet or change the formula. If baby's lacking an enzyme, that's going to get caught very, very early because they're going to be, you know, they're going to have issues very early at the hospital. And then two, they're not likely to outgrow it either because they're not making an enzyme. That's their body just doesn't produce that enzyme. When we think of intolerance, often we think of what's called lactose intolerance, where as adults, the older and older we get, the less of the right enzyme that we need to break down milk, sugar specifically, um, stops being produced. And that's biological um, for many of us. We're just not meant to continue consuming um, lactose or milk products basically into adulthood. But a baby is born with all of the lactase typically that it needs in order to break down breast milk, which is fabulous. Um, so an intolerance is not typically what infants experience. What infants instead experience more often than not is what we call the non-IgE allergy. So it is an allergy, um, but the wonderful news is that it's out Grown. And so that's the biggest like 
you know, light at the end of the tunnel that we can tell these parents. If your baby's experiencing what we commonly accidentally get classified as an intolerance, meaning the, the bloody stool, um, the vomiting, reflux, colic, we'll put quotation marks around colic, um, the um, mucusy stool, diarrhea, all of those things are non-IgE-mediated allergies, such as allergic practicolitis or um, protein entercolitis. So those are non-IgE-mediated allergies. They're going to be outgrown, which is fabulous. And they're not in IgE-mediated allergy, which is what we typically think of when we think of a stereotypical allergy. Like, I ate a peanut, I need an EpiPen, I'm going to go into anaphylactic shock. Um, so those are kind of the three categories. And unfortunately, in this space, we don't get parsed out that middle category of, like, you're not an intolerance and you're not an IgE-mediated life-threatening allergy. You're right in the middle where it's still the immune system, which is the main difference, and intolerances and enzyme deficiency and allergy is the immune system. So we're still the immune system um, and still causing issues there, but it's likely to be outgrown and it's likely less severe reactivity. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell. If you're listening to this and you're a little didn't get, you know, right out of the gate at the hospital diagnosed and have really rare issues with enzymes, you're likely looking at a non-IG mediated allergy. Yeah, I, I love that you explain that so clearly because, I mean, I even use the term intolerance for non-IgE allergies because I think we're trying to differentiate what people think of as an experienced allergic reaction. The hives, the swelling, the itching, that's IgE allergy, but that's different you can still have an allergy and not have the IgE and the IgEs are the antibodies, correct? Like yep, for those yep. who don't, don't understand. So there's IgA and IgG that can cause difficulties as well. So um, thank you so much for that explanation. And as you were describing the symptoms of the non-IgE mediated allergy, it's a mouthful. We have we have to think of a new word for that. It needs a better word. Yeah. 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 Um, as you're describing those symptoms, it's reminding me of why it's important for someone who's talking about tongue tie to talk to someone like you, because so many of the symptoms can overlap. Because when we have a baby with tongue tie, often we have as and I air quote the colic too, because I say all the time colic is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom, right? So the colic, the explosive poops, because the baby may be taking in too much air, the reflux because the baby is intolerated, you know, with that air coming in, all the things, even I've even seen mucus poops. I haven't seen bloody poops with just tongue tie, but I have seen mucus poops just from tongue tie. And once we get all those issues resolved, there's no food intolerant or no food. See, there I go. There's no food protein. <laughs> Reactivity problem. is a good word for it. <laughs> so the symptoms can definitely overlap. Do you see this as well? Do you see that the topic's getting confused? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's very, very common for us to work with families that have kind of a, a packaged baby where there's more than one issue um, or there is one issue and it's just mimicking food reactivity. So food reactivity is typically the term that I like to use. That's a, a happy middle ground for everybody. 
Um, <laughs> that, yeah, that that isn't <clears throat> isn't a, a full mouthful. Um, so while we're working with families, you hit it right on the head in that tongue tie mimics so many of the symptoms that we're looking for for food reactivity. And so it's really common for parents to um, find a provider who says like, oh yeah, your baby has reflux and mucusy stools. It must be reactive to something. So cut this out of your diet. And like, that's what they're told. And then it doesn't lead to any improvement. And now we're we're snowballing this elimination diet, right? Parent is removing more and more and more and yes. more things from their diet. And all the while, it's actually a tongue tie issue, which is heartbreaking for mm. us to be like, you know, the parent went down to only a handful of foods just to find out that there was mm. a tongue tie the entire time. Yeah, I had so, someone who was just eating chicken and rice and wondering <sighs> why her baby wasn't doing well. And she felt awful. And it was weeks and weeks like this. And I looked under the tongue and I was like, guess what? It might not be a food intolerance. It might not be a food reaction. It may just be the tongue tie. And she gradually introduced foods again. She was so relieved. Um, Yeah. So, so um, do you see this a lot? I mean, I, I see it in my area that pediatricians are jumping to the food reaction very quickly. They're quick to blame, to blame breast milk and, and make it like, oh, just take everything out. Like it's not a big deal, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent. We see that a lot where, um, and I think the reason, not a good reason, but I think part of the reason is that it's, it's an easy, it's an easier way out to say like, this is your fault. Um, it is your breast milk. If you just switch to formula, it will fix all of your problems, which we all know it's not the case. Um, and it is quite frankly, easier to continue to say like, well, are you sure you eliminated all the things or it's, it's a lot easier Quite frankly, if I can be super frank, it's quite a lot easier to gaslight um, a parent who's in the middle of an elimination diet and like whether or not they're being compliant enough or they're doing a good enough job than it is to go down the track of um, a tongue tie and revision and the exercises necessary to make sure that it's effective. And that's a lot more work, quite frankly. So. Um, we see that very, very commonly when parents get to us. And that's why when we're doing an elimination diet strategy, we almost always only do a five day strategy because that is enough time for us to determine like is food reactivity in fact the issue that we have or is there a different anatomical or lactation issue that we need to have addressed? And often we start out with that conversation. Have you seen an IVSCLC? Have you seen one that's effectively trained in tongue tie? And have you had an assessment done? I love that. So yeah, the five day thing, when I first started, we were telling parents two weeks and, and then even if there was, even if things weren't better, well, you might as well stay like this because we're scared. You know, it was, it was pretty awful, but what I see in my practice is, I mean, it's a day or two. If, if it's a true food reaction in a day or two, the baby is going to be better. And, you know, I'm going to tell a story. Most of my listeners know that I recently became a grandma and I'm sorry if my daughter's listening because she's going to be a little annoyed at me sharing this, but she has a milk allergy. We're not sure how mediated it is, but it's a, it's a milk intolerance that she, it, it definitely, she can't have dairy. So she's not going to introduce dairy to her child. However, it's cow's milk that bothers her. So she has sheeps and goats in her diet. 
Now the baby is having, yes, of course, my grandchild has a tongue tie. And one day I'm going to do a whole, a whole uh, podcast just about his journey. But he also is having explosive poops that I think is more related to food reactivity. And I asked her to please remove the other cheeses that she likes. Well, her comment was, mom, you take all the joy out of my life. (laughs) Whereas most, you know, my patients would be like, sure, I'll try anything, but this is my daughter. Right. So she was like, oh, mom, oh, mom. So she, she promised me she was going to, I'm going to see her today and find out if she tried it. And if there was anything different, because I just have a suspicion that that might be it. Um, And yeah, it's hard, but I did say to her, just do it for a couple of days and notice. I'm not telling you to do this forever. And if he's okay and you can have it sometimes and you know it's not that severe because he's basically okay. It's just sometimes. So she said, okay, I'll think about it. But so how often do you see that there's a similar reactivity in the different types of milk proteins? Because the the proteins are pretty different from each other, right? Yeah, so what's really interesting about uh, mammalian milks is that there are certain um, organisms where their milk looks very, very similar structure-wise for the protein. And so cow's milk, for example, looks about 90% similar to goat and sheep. Um, So we have about a 90% cross-reactivity. So it's very lucky of her that she is one of those 10 percenters that doesn't cross-react to these other organisms, which is great because then she can enjoy these other cheeses. But it's very, very likely that one, um, if she has issues, it's very likely that her little will have issues and it's more likely that the other organisms will cause problems as well. And what's really interesting too in my work, um, I'm specifically focused on exactly what portions of these proteins elicit a response and infants. So we look more at like other cross-reactivity such as um, those littles who have issues with dairy also often have little issues with soy, for example, and why and what portion of the protein that causes that issue. So very often then parents will be told, you know, remove cow's milk, um, not realizing that the alternatives that we usually come up with, these, um, you know, sheep, goat, and soy ends up also being an issue for their baby too. So that's something that we help parents navigate. That's great. So just, just to review my strategy for my own patients is usually take out everything and then if you know, take out all animal uh, milk protein. If everything is okay in a couple of weeks, try some goat cheese. Don't, you know, and see what happens. And yeah, so and that, 100% that's agree. I go, because there are some people that, I mean, I'm Italian. I live in Staten Island, which is like, you know, an extension of Brooklyn. Everybody here, when I tell them they can't have cheese, it's really not, it's really not good. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute. I mean, I've literally had people cry in my office about giving up cheese. And even though I say, but it's only for like a few days to see how it is anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, totally agree with that. So usually when we're working with families, we will choose a specific elimination diet strategy. We'll do so for five days, um, see what the results end up being. And then from there, a few things can potentially happen. Either one, we can get to um, a happy, happy, healthy baby, which is obviously always the goal. And then we can start reintroduction strategies where we say like, okay, we removed X, Y, and Z. What if we brought back Y? 
and in this amount and in this form and see, you know, what what exactly does the elimination diet have to be? Because I don't prescribe to the thought process of just eliminate things for funsies because it's not fun. Um, And we should confirm. We should always do a confirmation trial, Um, especially if we're dealing with these reactions that are a little bit more mild. Right. It's not fun. I will definitely say that too. like trialing foods back and seeing a reaction isn't fun for us either. But it's really important that we don't just blindly eliminate things without knowing whether or not it's a problem, because one, it can impact our micronutrients as far as like, are we getting in the right nutrients? And two, it can impact our mental health for us to feel like we are being restrictive of something that we don't actually know is a problem. And that can really mess with our heads of like, can I really not eat that, you know, cheese board or, Mm. or, you know, I'm not sure. So if we can do it in a, in a very specific manner and try all these things back and say, Oh yeah, no, I feel very confident that this is the problem. And that is not, I'm going to eat all of the eggs in the world, but I'm not going to eat cheese during my breastfeeding journey, for example. And that's exactly the route that we go to. Yeah, that's great. So the um, I want to go circle back to something you said before about the components of the protein. And I knew, I know before we came on, we said we weren't going to get too geeky, but this just has my my science brain going. So there are similar. You're looking at the the components of the proteins, and there are similar components, even soy to cow's milk. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So um, I. I know we did talk about like, we're yeah. not going to get too nitty gritty technical, but I, I have a really interesting way to kind of think about this that may help the listeners to kind of picture this in their minds. So um, when we're looking at a protein structure, one of the analogies I like to use is if you were thinking about um, sitting in front of you, wherever you're, you're, you're looking right now, um, the alphabet, A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. And if it was just lined up right in front of you, when we have a protein structure, it's essentially, it's like the alphabet. We use letters to annotate portions of those proteins, the building blocks of these proteins, and they're, they have different charges. So they'll fold up on each other and create like if you took a piece of paper, crumpled it up, it will create like a 3D structure. And that's what these proteins kind of look like in our foods that we consume. And so if I took that 3D structure and I, I stretch it back out in front of you, and so now you're looking at A, B, C, D all the way across, um, that is the full sequence of the protein. And when we consume this protein, we're going to break it down in different places in our body. And so, for example, maybe now I take that alphabet that you're looking at and I'm going to cut it between D and E and M and M and S and T. So now there's three little portions of protein, right? Now they're broken down. The schnazzy word for this is denaturing. And now they're polypeptide chains. But that doesn't matter. We're looking at little alphabet pieces now, snippets of that protein. And what's even more fascinating is so our body's breaking this down. It breaks it down into these three pieces, for example. And now we are only going to actually transfer from our gastrointestinal system to our circulatory system and then to our breast, maybe one of those three pieces. So we don't actually transfer all of them. So we may transfer the first piece that's like A, B, C, D, that little snippet right there. And that may be the portion that elicits a response in your infant. And different children will be reacted to different parts of the protein. So if you are only transferring A through D, for example, but your baby is allergic to the XYZ part of the protein, you may never see reactivity through your breast. You may never see a reaction until you get to solids and you give baby a piece of cheese and there's a reaction. There's a huge surprise. Oh my God, I never knew. That's so shocking because the stars haven't aligned for you and yay, we got to eat cheese and I'll be over here saying, you know, darn you. Um, so 
And that's what's happening when we see reactivity through the breast is that the stars align and you are transferring that very specific of the portion of the protein that elicits a response in your specific baby. And so that's where um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is, is like, what is that little portion that you transfer? How much of it do you transfer? And can it cause an issue for our infants? And the like secondary portion of that that you mentioned is that those sequences for certain foods will look very similar. So for example, maybe A through D is the same sequence that we see in soy that also transfers to our breast. And there's a lot of cross-reactivity like that where the sequence in one protein will be very similar to another and will transfer both of them. So our baby may be reactive to both. This is so fascinating to me. And the future opportunities for research and and developing tools to help families is just incredible because, and, and I see it, you know, I'm, I'm looking on the other side of things too, not just for breastfeeding, but for grown up people, right. Who have problems with certain foods. If we can identify the certain portions of the protein, and that makes sense for some people who can tolerate things that are processed and in like baked goods and they can't, do raw or they can do, you know, different forms of the protein. Going back to what we were talking about, about the different types of allergies, there is an article circulating right now all over Instagram that makes it seem like there's no such thing as an allergy to food and, and breast milk. And to me, it's heartbreaking. It must be frustrating to you because to me, it's, it's like, talk about gaslighting. It's like telling women that you've been wrong. You did all this for no reason. There's no such thing as an allergy. Do you want to speak a little bit about that article and that research and what it means? Yes, absolutely. And and yes, to be totally candid, it is infuriating. <laughs> Not only because you. it's it's very gaslighting, um, because I've lived and breathed the space for almost seven years after my first daughter and elimination diets, and then my second, and then this company. So on the mom side of things, it's infuriating. On the scientist side of things, it's also infuriating because I can be able to read this article and see where they went wrong and, and be very confused about why. So essentially, this isn't the first article that has done a review like this. There was another one last year, very, very similar, where they specifically said like, hey, we did a review a meta-analysis, which is basically a study of studies, where we pulled 32 different studies that all looked at protein transfer. And we can prove that because of the concentration that these studies all found, that there's no possible way that it can cause an issue for an infant. And this is why. And the unfortunate part is that, yes, did they go back and did they look at 32 studies? Absolutely, they did. And unfortunately, all 32 studies that they looked at were looking at the entirety of the whole version of that protein. And as we just got done mentioning, so it's the perfect segue, that's not what we transfer. It would be very strange if you shot peanuts out of your breast. It would be very painful. Um, and that's not how any of this works. And as molecular biologists, quite frankly, we know better. Like We know that you're not going to be transferring the protein in its whole version to your breast. And so is there old research that's looking for the whole protein and showing that it's in very, very tiny concentrations? Absolutely, that exists. But the more frustrating part about this particular article is that they even reference in this article um, a study that talks about how we only transfer peptides, these sequences, these little sequences, and that they're in a high enough 
well above high enough concentration to elicit a response. And what I mean by that is um, the FDA, when we're looking at food manufacturing specifically, they have a standard where most foods have, have to be below like five parts per million is the, the unit. So it has to be below five parts per million in order for it to be classified as like non-allergenic for that food. So, for example, um, cow's milk protein would have to be below five parts per million in a food that's not supposed to have cow's milk protein in it. Because anything above that, the FDA would qualify as causing an illicit res a response in a person. The concentrations in which we are transferring these sequences of peptides, not the entirety of the protein, but these little portions of the protein, is over 500 parts per million. Yeah. So the answer to, like, do we transfer? Absolutely. Do we transfer enough to elicit a response in an infant? Also, absolutely. Is it the entirety of the protein? No, and that would be weird if it was. We would have all kinds of like gastrointestinal and circulatory and breast problems if we were transferring the entire sequence of a protein to our breast. Um, so this kind of like what feels like a gotcha article of like, see, this doesn't exist. It's stupid that we have parents do this. What it feels like on my side, is that instead we are pointing the finger back at parents and back at breast milk and saying, see, if your baby has issues, it's because your breast milk is no good and you cannot continue to breastfeed. So you have to switch to a formula, which couldn't be further from the truth. You absolutely can switch to a formula. You can combo feed. That's not where my issue is. My issue is in saying that this is not fixable because it is. It can be adjusted through the diet. And we have centuries of families who have specifically said, I lived and breathed this space. I have eliminated things from my diet and see impact with my baby. So then to take all of that and put together a review that says that it doesn't exist and even include in your references the articles that say that it does exist in the peptide sequences is just dumbfounding for me. <laughs> um, and hopefully, like, it's an uphill battle. And I know you get this, like, in your soul. Um, <clears throat> the battle of trying to change the narrative and trying to show that the way that we're thinking about this problem is wrong, especially if... The way that we've thought about this problem is beneficial to large companies mm -hmm. up to this point. Yeah. So if it is very beneficial for a large company to inform parents and pediatricians and other health professionals that it's not possible for your breast milk to be adjusted and to be safe for your baby, that's very beneficial for them. And that is frustrating for me because it's truly it's just simply not factual. Yeah, I hear the frustration and I feel that frustration for you. And I think it's important for my for our listeners to to understand the motivation behind campaigns like this. And there are in every field that is bucking the system, there are similar campaigns. Some of them are obvious in their funding, in their who did it, who's bringing it forward, who's promoting it. And some of them are more subtle. You know, so, I mean, it blows my mind to think when I think that the the people that are doing this, the scientists that are doing this, the, the authors of these articles should probably be parents themselves or friends of parents or relatives of parents. You know, like, like why don't you put yourself on the side of the humans and who we're helping 
more than the bottom line of the, the money or figure out how to make money like you're trying to do, trying to monetize. Of course, you deserve to make money. This isn't an altruistic, like I'm going to do this for saving the world and saving breastfeeding without being making money for it. There is a way to monetize even for the researchers, I, I would think. I don't know. What do I know? Yeah, no, you're, you're know? totally correct. You're totally correct you know? in that um, the unfortunate part about it is that when large corporations are um, play a hand in the research, they can very specifically decide what the um, inclusion and exclusion criteria are right. um, and drive the science in a very specific manner in which, you know, meets their bottom line. And <clears throat> the um, unfortunate part on, on my side of the journey is absolutely 100%. That's a, a big hurdle for me to, to jump. And it's also, it makes it even bigger hurdles when things like this are published. And I'm speaking to investors and grant funders. Um, and they're like, well, there's this article that just came out that was really popular that said that this doesn't even exist. So like, why right. would I put money into this research if it doesn't exist? Right. And then I have to re-educate and inform investors and grant panels about like, no, this is why. And and that's a huge hurdle to, yes. to climb, to say like, no, this does exist and this is why. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to at least the foundation already being known, right? Mm-hmm. At least the foundation already being known. So that part's really difficult. And on the side of like the making money piece, for us, what's interesting is that in order to get this to next steps in order to make it so that one, we can get grant funding and investor funding. Um, it has to be in the form of a startup company, which is very common in the science space where, especially if you're in your grad school and you guys discover something in grad school that could be impactful to commercial, right? That may be a drug, that might be a therapeutic, whatever it may be as a scientist. Then the goal is to literally spin off and try to find and make yourself a startup because research and the way that research is, is put together and how we run and it's a very old machine um, research in and of itself and, and universities are not um, built to to create products, right, to, to take a, a, a test strip like myself, or to take a medicine and take it to commercial instead, spin off either sell to a large corporation or spin off into a startup as a scientist and then get it to market. Um, so that's not uncommon either. And for me, um, it, it is an interesting conundrum because once you start, because I'm at heart and soul a scientist, once you start as a company and you start the startup world, um, especially as a biotech startup, the whole goal as you're talking to investors is to make them bugos of money, right? To show them that there's a big market. Um, and that's hard for me because it's never been like, I'm going to be a gajillionaire. It was never like the goal starting out. It was how do we help these parents and get the research funded? And this was how. Um, and so it's certainly interesting to, for me, and I've, I've learned a lot over the last four years and who to align myself with to make sure that like, yeah, is there going to be money made? Absolutely. There will most certainly be money made because it's a huge problem and we're going to be a massive solution for this very big problem. Um, but it's more than that, and it's more important than that. And being able to find the right investors and grant agencies who will align with me on that, because the difference being that if you are aligning with investors who 
don't have that mindset of, if they only have the mindset of the bottom line, then we would, for example, have already launched the test trips and they're not perfect yet and they need to be just about stinking perfect in order for them to go to market. Um, And so I have to align myself with people who are like, oh yeah, I I understand and I get why this has to be a certain caliber before it can be in the hands of parents. Um, Things like that. It's it's very nuanced. It's a very strange world that I have uh, Mm -hmm. dove into headfirst and learning all the time. Yeah. So you went from being a scientist to being a business person, entrepreneur, learning all about nonprofits and funding and grants and all that stuff. (laughs) And there's, there's a lot, you know, for those who are listening now, who don't know the, who haven't heard Dr. Trill before we've had some conversations and this has not, I just want to summarize it by saying this has not been an easy journey. And when I say making money that you deserve to make money, I don't mean that like I think that you're only in it for the money. Not at all. I know your motivation, but I also know that you've made a lot of sacrifices economically to be able to do this. And I I want people to appreciate how much this means to you and how much you've put into it. And, you know, gratitude from me and for all the families that you do help and that you will help in the future. And every time I see you, you're like the little engine that could. You just keep going and this hurdle comes and you just jump over it and keep going. And I love that and admire that in you. You're such an example for people everywhere to follow your dreams, especially when it's a mission-based dream, right? And that's another thing that we share. You know, if you told me 10 years ago that I'd be doing this right now, I would have never believed you. I was, I was very shy. I never spoke in public, but I knew that there were things that I needed to teach people that I would have to grow a mouse and, you know, get some chutzpah behind me and learn (laughs) to do this. And now I'm comfortable with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't natural to me and it wasn't anywhere where I expected to be, but I'm glad I'm here too. So we have a lot, we have so many parallels in our um, careers and our world. I I love that about me and you. (laughs) I totally agree. I totally agree. And I appreciate you, you sharing that. And um, one of the things that has truly been helpful for me is I've come up against obstacle after obstacle in the middle of this crazy journey um, has been really thinking on and reflecting on all of the families that we have helped already. So when I mentally go to the space of like, I want to help all these families and I, and I want to be impactful. And then to like sit back for a second and think like, you really have been, right. Mm-hmm. You really have impacted so many families already with the work that you've done up to this point, anything above this is going to be even better and even more helpful. Um, and that's been, really impactful for me to give myself a little bit of grace um, because I'm not the best at that either. Um, So, and, and yes, like I never thought that I would be on the internet dancing to booby facts for Instagram. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and and it's like a ripple effect because you, and and that's why, you know, a lot of people downplay social media and I haven't danced on Instagram yet because I'm, I'm much older than you. It wouldn't be as pretty, but the, the social media ability for you to share something and then it's a very important and it's something that families need to learn and I can share it with my families and then other families share it with, I, I love when you get like, you can see it's mom's 
posting other moms names like you have to read this, you know, so it's it's a ripple effect and we get to as many people as we can, you know, so I, you know, yes, Instagram has its like cringe worthy things going on and there's not everything that's posted like we just talked about that article, not everything is true and real and some people are um, using it and using some make-believe facts to get popular. But for the most part, I think, I think it's a nice tool. So Dr. Trill, I would love for you to tell our audience how to follow you. And it's going to be in the show notes as well. Um, and also, yeah, let's start with that. Tell, tell everybody where to find you. And then I have another question for you. Absolutely. So, um, our biggest platform right now is Instagram, as you mentioned. And so on Instagram, we are at free.to.feed. Um, and we're constantly sharing uh, content and resources over there to help parents navigate this. I, I'm constantly talking to parents who um, literally navigate the entirety of their journey just through our, our Instagram content, which is heartwarming. Um, I run all of our social media platforms. So if you reach out and you have questions, I'm the one that's answering those questions. So I'm happy to help. Um, you can also find us on any of the other platforms with the handle at B free to feed so be free to feed um, and then of course on our website so free to feed.com um, that's where you can find all of our services consults uh, we have a cookbook we have a multivitamin we have all kinds of craziness going on over there um, and in addition to that join the waitlist for the test strips specifically so you can get first dibs on the test strips once they are available on the market so this podcast is probably publishing in march of 2022 when do you have an estimate for when for the test strips and guesstimate? Yeah, so we're hoping for end of summer. So we will <laughs> hopefully, obviously, with science, who knows? Um, a lot can happen between now and then, but I'm really hopeful for um, end of summer of this year. We'll see. So those test strips will allow moms to test their milk for specific proteins. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. So imagine the freedom in that. I love that. So, and okay, then, so yeah, go ahead. And the really, you know, important piece that I want to mention there is that we, we've talked a lot about misinformation and, and misunderstanding and all of this. Um, and I can stand on the top of every Instagram and Facebook mountain um, and scream from the top of my lungs of the, the real research and the real information and how to help families. And what I truly think is going to get us there is just putting the power in parents' hands. So if we just give them the test strip and they just know, I know that I transfer at this portion at this time and I know exactly when it's clear and I know exactly when it gets there, then the misinformation kind of starts to fade away because the parent power is in the parents' hands now and there's no more or there's much less anyway of the chatter of, well, you don't transfer. I, I know I transfer because I tested and I can tell. Right. Oh, I love that. And I mean, you know that I'm all about empowering and women and mothers and parents of, you know, trusting their intuition and not, not having that, talk, not being talked out of trusting your intuition, which a lot of healthcare providers do. Definitely trust your intuition. That's my, my goal. I always say that if I, I tell, I tell families that come to my office, even if I tell you something that doesn't feel right for you, don't listen to me. 
You know yeah, best exactly. for your baby. You know best for your baby. Hopefully it feels right to them and they are listening to me, but that's another story. So Dr. Chill, before we sign off today, I just want to make sure, like if you could tell families one thing to know about what you do or what you, you know, to empower them, what would that be? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is as parents navigating any journey is um, our worry, you know, the the kind of lack of confidence around like, am I doing the right thing in the moment? Um, am I making the right decisions for my, my child? And so with all of that in mind, the number one thing that I would leave that your listeners with is that wherever you're at in your journey right now, you're doing an amazing job. So incredibly proud of you. We see all of the work that you have done. And if it is a past journey that you're listening to this, you're like, oh, man, like, I wish I would have known. We wish you would have known, too. I wish I had had me six years ago. Um, that's a common thing that, that I hear, too, and that you did the absolute best that you could with the information that you had at the time. And wherever you're at right now, you're doing a freaking amazing job and you're continuing to learn because you're here listening. And so I just want to say I'm super proud and my brows off to you. I love it. I love it. That was perfect. Dr. Trill, thank you so much for being here today. And thank, thank you, so you for, for all you do. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy what you hear, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed on this week's podcast. Also, you'll find the ways to follow us on social media. Bye-bye.